Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormoran Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay Pools and I will be joined by Sam for our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters three through six of part four. As always, please be aware that our discussion of Cuckoo's Calling will reference the ending of this book, as well as subsequent books in the series up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get started, though, we have a really interesting bit of book news. So we have official confirmation on Twitter that Joe is working on book seven. Yay! Woo! Knowing this. Sorry, that was a weird noise. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's just the excitement of it all. Yeah, it was overcome. My yeah, house of course. Moved on its own. I can't control it. <laughs> but knowing this, have your guesses about what project the two most recent Twitter headers could be referring to changed at all? Or is it pretty much the same? Mine's kind of the same. I think she's following the same pattern as last time. I mean, wasn't she working on Ink Black Heart when she was posting headers for Troubled Blood? I think. I think so, yeah. So I think that the Norfolk, trying to say that how Sam says I should. Yeah, yeah, you got it. All right. I think that header is probably still Ink Black Heart and maybe the new trees. I went a bit mad with this today. I saw. <laughs> So I've gone through and I've made a very detailed breakdown of the exact dates of all of the relevant headers and the dates of the important tweets about the books to try and figure this out. And I've got a document so long that I'm going to have to make this into a blog post for the website. But so I have discovered through my very scientific method that the strike headers are usually posted either when she's writing the book that they are relevant for, or they're clustered around the time she announces she's finished the book and reveals the title, or mm. one to two months prior to the book's release as a promotion. So if we hold that this is a pattern, there is one anomalous tweet, which is one of the troubled blood headers that was posted one month after the title reveal. That's a bit out mm. of the pattern. But so if this pattern holds true, I think that the Cromer header and the Dark Forest headers would be referring to Seven that she's writing because I think they're too early to be promotional headers and I think they're too late to be clustered around that sort of finishing the book, title renouncement, etc. So I'm going to write it up and readers let me know if you think that I have a case or not. We'll see. We'll duke it out. I'm mostly thinking of the Troubled Blood headers or everything in 2020 because they were all for Troubled Blood. Yeah. I mean, unless there's any that are unaccounted for. There weren't any posted after she announced it was finished, except for the one that I mentioned. Yeah. And that might fit with the Norfolk one. Maybe. Maybe. But she also did have a lot of other projects going on during that time. So those could have True. taken the place of any cryptic upcoming ones that she may have used. True. Yes. That is a good point. The other stuff she's working on might throw this off. Yeah. yeah which I feel like now I'm just arguing towards your point, but... <laughs> Listen, we need to just write this up both sides. I'm just wondering if we have any that are unaccounted for in 2020 that don't fit with Troubled Blood, because I still feel like those are all related to Troubled Blood. And if there are any unaccounted for that might be for the Ink Black Heart, that would further support your point. But I don't think that there are. I don't think there are any unaccounted ones in 2020. Yeah. So that's kind of my argument that I think that that is a pattern. I haven't been able to go through your list though. So that's fine. I guess the good news is that we don't have to wait that long until we figure this out. And now that we're looking at this, we can go back after we read the ink black heart and see mm -hmm. if any of these older ones 
Yeah, because two books isn't enough of a data set, is it? Really? Yeah. You, the three books will be a stronger data set to make mm -hmm. predictions, I think. Yeah. yeah, we'll see. I've seen a lot of stuff recently about the page count for Ink Black Heart, and yeah. it seems like everyone has been changing their minds on actually what the final count is for weeks and weeks and weeks. And have we actually got a final agreed count from anybody now? No, I saw a post from the Tottenham the other day. <laughs> called it the ongoing saga, which I thought was funny. <laughs> but that, yeah, many of the UK sellers have now updated to 1,024 pages. Yeah, that was what I last saw. But as long as we don't get any sudden changes to 500 pages, I'm fine. <laughs> I would be so upset. Don't put that into the universe. Knock on wood quickly. Yeah. Quickly. Everybody, everybody knock. Knock Three. on wood. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, the good news, I think, is that by the time like a, around a month, maybe a month and a half goes by, we should have a cover and a synopsis for Ink Black Heart. So we should, I think, have a hammered down set number of pages by that point. Yeah, I hope so. Do we want to take a second here and revisit the whole Highgate Cemetery header and Fantastic Beasts versus Strike as far as like which ones it's related to? Absolutely. Yes. Because the third Fantastic Beast movie is now out and we know it doesn't make an appearance. So sounds like this is a hundred percent strike, which again, super exciting. I feel so vindicated by this because as far as I can gather, there aren't any lions or menageries or anything related to Wombwell in the new movie. And of course, there's no Highgate Cemetery location. So I'm convinced that this one is ink black heart i would honestly i'd bet money on the cemetery being a location in the novel because remember when she posted the parliament roof heading that was yeah. a location that was in the novel i guess we should be fair and say that none of us have actually seen the movie right sam have True. you seen it no i haven't no we just asked some friends who had seen it and they told us that nothing of the sort was in it but i'm completely with you that this is the ink black heart and that we'll visit highgate and i'm really excited about that possibility me too and you know if you're right about the dark mm -hmm. forest header we know noticed a lot of wooded land in and around the cemetery so a nighttime spooky cemetery visit could account for that tree header as well and it would be so romantic and exciting right according to not just my dad but a few other people i've talked to who lived in london and stuff i get cemetery used to be a place where young people would go and well do do whatever young people do do you're not the most romantic of places but agree to disagree ask mary shelley how romantic cemeteries are <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what i'm talking about <laughs> I do think it has romantic potential because from what I've seen, it looks really beautiful. And my friend Anna Kiara says that it's like the secret garden. Mm -hmm. Not that I think Strike and Robin are going to use it for the purposes your dad mentioned. <laughs> but, I don't think we can rule that out, but okay. I think we can. I think we can. Sure. Well, but I'm also realistic because I had hoped that their drive to Hampton Court was going to be a cute little trip. And look how that turned out. Robin was upset the whole time. She never gives us what we expect when it comes to the romance. That's very very true. Yeah. All right. So let's get started with chapter three. And in this chapter, Strike and Robin go inside the flats at Kentigern Gardens. So when the chapter opens, there's this mention here of the marbled lobby as Strike and Robin enter the building. And it reminds me of something that Gisa May said in the previous chapter about it being like she was living in her own tomb. How do you guys interpret this? Do you feel like she really felt oppressed in that building? Or is this Gisa May's perspective and his desire for her to live with him? 
there is definitely like an eerie sort of connection there with a place that was supposed to be her place of protection becoming the place where she ultimately ended up meeting her end. For me personally, in the part where Guy talks about Lula's feelings towards her flat and moving over there, you know, while the motivation might be correct, it's kind of hard in certain places to discern what Lula's actual thoughts were versus Guy's interpretation and kind of projection of his own feelings onto whatever she did say. To me, it kind of sounds like part of a narrative he's constructed in his head to make sense of why she moved there, but without having more information, it's kind of hard. I personally think that Guy was right about why she moved there. She wanted to feel secure after that stalker incident. And we know that this place does give off a bit of a fortress vibe with its security, right? I don't know. When I think of Lula, I don't think that this particular style of wealth, which is sterile, closed off, stagnant, it's a very traditional, stuffy, restrictive kind of environment. I don't think he was wrong about Lula hating it there because we know she was full of life. And it seems to me like the setting just, it's very incongruous with who we see her as in the little signs she leaves behind, as it says later. The fact that she had her balcony doors open in the dead of winter feels like it confirms to me what he said that she needed to feel connected to the energy of the city, right? I like the idea that the marble is a literal tomb symbol, but symbolic of how the fame and press drove Lula to put herself away in this building out of fear. And then it literally became her, her tomb. It might be my dislike of Gisame, but I agree with you, Ken, that it's hard to tell what's really true here. I think it's possible that what Lula really resented was the need for that type of security, but not the security itself. I just got the impression she was living in the sort of place she was expected to live in with the sort of people that she was expected to move in the the same circles as I suppose rather than where she wanted to be and who she wanted to be with it all felt very forced to me I think probably for a young woman who wants to be independent but who's famous it's kind of like a necessity yeah that kind yeah, of security sure. while they are in Kentigran Gardens Robin is trying not to seem too impressed she and Matthew occupied the lower floor of a semi-detached house in Clapham its sitting room was the same size as that designated for the off-duty guards, which Wilson showed them first. There was just enough room for a table and two chairs. Okay. Me and myself and my tiny, barely one-bedroom apartment identify strongly with Robin here. <laughs> and my sofa's not Ikea that she's proud of, but it is. Bargain furniture warehouse. So I love Ikea. Yes, I'm... I like that she then thinks about Strike's place and my shipper yeah. heart just wants to jump ahead and wonder where these two are going to live when they finally live together. They'll have a cozy little, little yeah. love nest. So Wilson shows them the security cameras. And besides the fact that it kind of hurts all over again, that they don't record anything. Mm. One thing that struck me as funny is that one of the cameras is pointed at the back garden and the wall that Strike had hoisted himself up on. I'm just having this funny thought of Wilson or one of the other security guards seeing a head pop up over that wall. You know? <laughs> they probably would have thought he was casing the joint. Yeah, exactly. Who wouldn't want to see a Strike-esque face pop up over their garden <laughs> fence, though? <laughs> You're asking us. I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how relevant this is, but there's something interesting I noticed about the kind of keys that Wilson brings out. So one of them is a Yale, which is like a normal key. And then the other one is this thing called a chub key. And it looks a little bit like an old fashioned skeleton key. And when you use it with something called a chub detector lock, which is what is on that door that he's unlocking, it has a relocking mechanism, which engages when either you use the wrong key or you try and pick the lock and you have to have a special key 
to go in there and disengage it if it gets stuck. So in or- if you were going to kill somebody and try and escape without, you know, being apprehended, you'd have to either be remarkably skilled to pick the lock or already have access. I think it's relevant because it tells us that leaving through that door seems unlikely unless you have that key, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to know what that means or stop to look it up, but technically the clues are there. Yeah, it definitely makes leaving through the car park less likely, it Mm -hmm. seems. Was Bristow already planning on framing Jonah at this point if Lula told him he was coming over? Did Lula tell him that Jonah was coming over? I thought she arranged the visit with Jonah, like begging him to come over later that day at Vashti. Yeah, I don't know where my train of thought is going here other than wondering how he got so lucky that someone he could try to frame just appeared right when he killed her. But I do imagine that maybe Lula would have told him before he killed her at that final confrontation, because how would he know who the runner was? Yeah, that makes sense. He had hours to sit and wait and think what might happen afterwards and how things could play out. And I think maybe to an extent he did get lucky, but he had all that time to look at people who could take the blame or he could pass things on to. So two things. One, I'm laughing at the use of the phrase bejeaned backside. <laughs> Makes me think of bejeweled, right? Yeah. <laughs> bedazzled. Bedazzled. Yes. Bedazzled. Maybe she had a bedazzled bejeaned backside. <laughs> oh, man. That would have been even harder to look away from. Yeah. But also, so aside from the bejeaned backside, strike reluctantly stopping checking out Lexinka when he knows notices that Robin is looking over at him I'm just he's such a dude it's so funny (laughs) I mean are we pretending like we women don't ever check people out I'm going to insert my halo emoji right here (laughs) one that Ken says she associates with me which Mm -hmm. I don't know why (laughs) I can't imagine why I don't know but and before anyone comes for me this is not the same as Wardle I know you're going to (laughs) he's like examining women point by point with a practiced eye Mm -hmm. it's different yeah definitely comes across less like leering Yeah, well, the language is different. And of course, it was Wardle's whole thing of how he spoke of women in that first meeting that really kind of paints an overall picture. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure everyone on the planet has checked someone out, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a big difference between checking out and leering. We all find people attractive, but the latter takes it a bit too far. Yeah, I just have to say it because I know (laughs) it's coming. (laughs) But the thing I'm kind of most interested in is why Robin's looking at him. Is she trying to see if he's looking at Luxinka? And if so, why? I'm not even trying to suggest that she's jealous or something because she's not interested in him romantically. So I'm just curious why she's interested. Do you think maybe she was just trying to copy him and see what he's paying attention to? Maybe she didn't realize at first that he was looking at Luxinka's ass (laughs) instead of focusing on the task at hand. She might have just noticed him checking Luxinka out and giving him sort of a sideways glance about it because our girl is pretty observant. She is. But I really like what you said, Ken's, because I bet she was watching him this whole time out of fascination and wanting to see how investigations are done. You know, that's got to fascinate her. Yeah, maybe she was expecting more of a professional approach and attitude all the way through. So to see that (laughs) lapse midway through just to check someone out, but a bit early to be getting jealous, I think. Well, if she did think anything of it, she didn't think too much about it right because we don't get anything from her about it so it, it either didn't bother her ken's point is really close yeah i kind of want to point out that lexinka is blonde and this could be pointing <laughs> towards a type thing but that feels like a bit of a stretch even for me well i think that the only thing to do here is to carefully tally up every single woman that strike checks out over the course of the mm-hmm. novels and then divide them up by their coloring into some sort of graph right science Science, it's the only way to know for sure. I'm glad we've mentioned that because I've prepared a short presentation. Um, (laughs) 
Hi, my name's Sam, and welcome to my TED Talk. <laughs> I would go to that TED Talk. I would go too. Absolutely, <laughs> I would. The only other person I can think of is the woman in the nurse costume in Troubled Blood, but I still don't know if I read that as him really checking her out or if that's what Robin was thinking, and it was kind of a nod to nurses. I feel like he was. It could be all of those things, but I feel like Strike's glance to the nurse was a bit of a... I guess we can't know because we weren't in his head. It's still just someone walks in in a costume. I'm going to look too. True. There was also the blonde one who was at the massage parlor in Career of Evil. He, he checks her out as she's walking away. And if Robin was a man, he would have said, I was in there. I mean, he was in there. Oh, yeah. He was flirting big time. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. That's two then or three. Two and a half, we'll say. He dates Ellen, who's blonde. Yeah, but then there's Charlotte and Lorelai. That's very true. Yeah. I'm kind of really interested in the painting that the Bastiglis have hanging in their flat. So the painting is of a spear-bearing man masked as a blackbird, arm-in-armed with a gray-toned headless female torso. I spent quite a bit of time looking online for any painting that matches this description, and I have had no luck. It seems unlikely to me that it's made up, but it might be. I mean, either way, I'm kind of wondering what this could represent and what kind of insight it can give us into the Bastigues. Yeah, I feel like it's got to be real as well. And I also couldn't find it. I was able to find the Chagall painting that's mentioned as hanging in the entryway, the one with the goats and the peasants floating over the blue village, or at least I think I did. I found something that could be that. And it's really quite weird and surreal as well. It feels like it's a bit of an unconventional painting for this type of rich person, you know, certainly for Freddie Bastigui. Maybe Tansy is really into art. It also seemed a bit odd to me, which is why I really wanted to find it because I thought seeing it might give me better insight into the meaning, but no luck. Art's always hard because it can come from anywhere and it can be by anyone, can't it? You know, unless it's listed somewhere online by someone famous, then, you know, that's just going to be really hard to dig out. Yeah, I mean, if anyone knows what this painting could be, let us know because it has now become a mystery that I can't solve, which means I want it more. <laughs> <laughs> All right, strike. Strike was, in fact, proving to himself that the logical route from the Bastigui's bedroom to their bathroom was through the hall, bypassing the sitting room altogether. Furthermore, it was his belief that the only place in the flat from which Tansy could conceivably have witnessed the fatal fall of Lula Landry and realized what she was seeing was from the sitting room. Yeah, I have a few things that I noted about what Strike notes as he's looking around the Bastigui's. So the first is that with the window shut, you can't hear anything, which we knew. I wish that my landlord would invest in this miraculous sound blogging technology. <laughs> yeah, you know, you've made it in life when you've got quad glazed floor to ceiling mm -hmm. windows in your flat and walk be going on outside and you just can't hear a thing. Although, you know, on the other hand, none of these people living in that building seem to be really happy, do they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Another thing is that he doesn't agree at all with Wardle that someone could clearly see who fell from the bathroom. Yeah. As Strike describes it, I think it's very obvious that Wardle and Carver didn't actually think through the logistics of seeing someone fall past a window at night. They just stood in the bathroom, they craned their necks and said, yep, the window's over there, crossed off the list, boys, let's go home, you know? Yeah. Goes to show just how having someone who's completely removed from everything that's gone on so far mm -hmm. can shed a new light on stuff. And, you know, you can see things that other people haven't seen or chosen to ignore. And then lastly, there's also this quick mention of the shrubs that on the balcony that we know weren't there that night. It says that the balcony was narrow and filled with the shrubs, indicating there's no room. So I like this very sly misdirection. A clue. 
Is there anything significant about the fact that Vestigui had the table with the roses placed directly in the middle of the hallway in the second flat? I think it was just that made it easier for that clumsy cop to bump them over, thus disguising the fact that Bristow had taken the flowers, right, to bluff his way into Lula's apartment. Yeah, it kind of feels like it puts it on display. Yeah, like the best thing we chose to do it to make them seem, wow, to make it pop, you know? But it does it for us as well. Yes. They talk a little bit about panic buttons that are in each flat, and I just I think it's so sad that she chose this place that has so much security and yet was so caught off guard by someone she trusted that all of that security didn't end up mattering. It is really sad. Of course, most violence against women is committed by someone they they know and trust. So family members, spouses, partners, right? So it's an upsetting illustration of of a truth about society that you can have all this security for the dangerous outsider, but the statistical likelihood is it's the person living with you or that you let in who's dangerous to you. Yeah, you're right. So Strike then talks to Lexinka, and there's a couple things that she says that stand out. First, she says that she heard Bristow shouting at Lula that she gives her boyfriend too much money, something that's also later said by Bryony. It makes me wonder how much Lula was actually giving him or if this is just Bristow's desire for that money himself. Mm, that's interesting. I suppose from Bristow's perspective, a single pound going to Duffield is too much money going to Duffield, right? Yeah. She should be giving it to her poor brother instead so he can replace all the money he stole, right? Mm. But but on the other hand, drug habits are expensive. And I can see Duffield yeah. taking a lot of cash from Lula, you know, one way or another. Yeah, I hate to say that I agree with Bristow, but I wouldn't want her giving Duffield any money either, probably for different reasons. Oh, yeah. If Lula was my sister, I too would be trying to keep her the hell away from Duffield. Yeah. So then she says that the second flat didn't take her long to clean because it had been empty. It's a very small detail that lets us know that John wouldn't have run into her after his fight with Lula, because if she was still in there cleaning, he wouldn't have been able to hide in there. Oh, smart. Yeah. She says that she went to clean the Bastigues and that she cleaned the windows. I'm trying to think if there's a bigger connection here, if it's just drawing our attention to them, because we know that Freddie cleaned them again later. I guess it's sort of a misdirection because it's an explanation as to why there won't be prints on the windows because no yeah. one touched them after she cleaned them. When in reality, as you said, they had been touched and Freddie had wiped them down. During this chapter, Strike is having trouble communicating with Lexinka, and Joe's description of it cracks me up. It's so funny. It says that Strike could hear himself lapsing into the absurd, over-deliberate language of the linguistically challenged Englishman. It's funny because it's so relatable. We can all picture exactly how that would look and sound. Yeah, the erratic hand gestures combined with shouting things in monosyllables. I think that's the classic (laughs) Englishman's method of communication for non-English speaking people. (laughs) Have you been? (laughs) I find it a bit funny that he's linguistically challenged when he can literally read and speak Latin. But I guess that doesn't actually help him communicate with any other living person. Useful for showing up pretentious authors, but, you know, that's about it. I suppose we're all linguistically challenged if it's a language we don't know. Yeah, that's true. So when they finally get up to Lula's flat, I like the little note that Lula had love color, but that it had been repainted to appeal to renters. I kind of wish that we would have gotten to see it exactly how it had been when Lula lived there. Mm-hmm. It's just the note that she loved color is a nice detail about her personality. It would have been nice to see it. Yeah, I would have loved to see it too. I always find myself curious about the carpet. It describes her picking out like the rough sand colored jute. Seems like such a boring floor choice to me, but I guess it's just a neutral that you can like put all your pops of color against. Yeah, you got to have a good neutral. I think it's noted because 
strike notes that it wouldn't have left footprints. Well, yes, but I'm obviously most concerned about the interior decorating. Of course. Obviously. This is strike trading spaces. (laughs) (laughs) So I really love this next part where Robin doesn't like watching strike go out on the balcony because of what had happened there. And then she looks away. It then says that she would have been surprised to know that his thoughts were not as dispassionate or clinical as she assumed they were. Mm. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. First, Strike is not only thinking about what those final moments would have been like for Lula, but he's also putting himself in the shoes of the killer and exploring what he thinks the mindset was. And what I really like about this is it's a wonderful way in which we can see Robin's growth from this point to the ending of Troubled Blood. So here she's looking away, but at the end of Troubled Blood, Robin is standing next to those phone booths doing this exact same thing. She's putting herself in the shoes of the killer And it not only highlights her growth, but we get to see how Strike has influenced her and mentored her. Oh, that is such a great point. And so much better than what I thought, because I just wondered if she looked away because it made her anxious for him to be out there. Because logically, she knows he's not going to fall off the balcony. But knowing someone did, you'd be a bit nervous. I get that because I don't like heights. So I would be feeling the same way. I'd probably be wanting to pull him back a little, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just hold on to the back of his coat, like just to make sure. Or something, whatever, (laughs) whatever I can grab onto. Yeah. It's logical to steer clear of places and things that we associate with danger. Even if whatever it was didn't happen to you, you don't want to tempt fate for a better phrase. And, you know, you worry about that happening to someone else anyway. Yeah. But my next thought was she assumes that strike is dispassionate and clinical, but I think we're really seeing his empathy here when he's thinking of Lula. And it kind of speaks to some of the misunderstandings and miscommunication that we'll get in future books between the two of them. It doesn't really surprise me here because they don't know each other very well, but by Trouble Blood, it does start to surprise me a little that she tends to do this still. Yeah. By Trouble Blood, yeah, it's definitely a little surprising that she would think that he's as unattached emotionally as all that, since he's given her plenty of reasons to believe otherwise now. I think that just speaks to Strike's need to let Robin into his head a little bit more so she won't always leap to the worst possible conclusion. And Robin needing to say that those things are important to her because he can't know. Yeah, unless she tells him. More of that talking thing. Yeah, Strike's also not long broken up from Charlotte as well. So maybe to a point there's burying himself in work and the case to distance from everything else. Yeah, and I think that this is also, and J.K. Rowling has talked about this a little bit too, but just the differences in how they see things just because he's a man and she's a woman, they're going to see things in a different way. And sometimes how we express empathy is different than other people. This next line that I'm about to read is one of the best lines of the book, in my opinion. It says... The dead could only speak through the mouths of those left behind and through the signs they left scattered behind them. That is a wonderful line. And it also falls with another beautiful line that says, Strike had felt the living woman behind the words she had written to friends. He had heard her voice on the telephone held to his ear, but now looking down on the last thing she had ever seen in her life, he felt strangely close to her. And I like how it's described as strange. It's not only that he felt close to someone he didn't know, But I think it's that Lula is the only other person besides the killer who knows what happened to her. And as Strike starts to piece it together, it's like he's being let in on the secret and he becomes the only person who can help get her justice. It kind of reminds me of that weird intimacy that you talked about, Pools, with the green dress where Strike and Robin are the only two people who really know what's going on in Vashti. This kind of feels a bit like that to me. I love that. I really love the way you put that. 
Oh, me too. You're making me feel all kinds of emotions about him now. <laughs> it is exactly like that. Not only is he standing literally where she stood, looking down at what she saw, but yeah, he now knows what she knew. And oh, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be resonating in my brain for a while. (laughs) (laughs) It is really sweet. And we all look for those personal moments that we can share with people that no one else has got. It's that special link or connection with people that we like. And it, it says a lot about Strike that he's kind of like seeking that, not in terms of Robin, but in terms of Lula and wanting to find her killer and to do the right thing for her, even though she isn't here anymore. Yeah, Yeah, it's really sweet. It's really cool. Now we're all having feelings for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Need a feelings break. Feelings break. Exactly. Yeah. In the same paragraph, though, it then says that the truth was slowly coming into focus, but what he needed was proof. And I love this because the very next line says that his phone rings and John Bristow's name and number were displayed. He took the call. I think it's absolutely brilliant that he's standing there thinking about the killer and thinking that he knows the truth and Bristow calls. It's so good. That is good. And then Bristow, I mean, his guilt is pretty obvious in hindsight, of course. When Strike asks him about the deleted photos from the laptop and he's just met with complete silence. He just, (laughs) he really thinks he's so smart. And I just have to laugh at how he must have been feeling here because his stupid plan isn't working. (laughs) (laughs) Something I've noticed lots of people do is they'll ask a question and just stay quiet while the other person answers. And when they've answered, continue to stay quiet. So to kind of like fill that void. Like what happens when silence meets silence? (laughs) he's gonna crack first yeah (laughs) but this should also be kind of narrowing our suspects list because we know that whoever deleted these photos did so after the police gave the laptop back and that laptop was at lady bristow's house so our pool of suspects has to be limited to people who would have had any reason to be in that house right yeah Nice of Bristow to try and throw suspicion on some poor nurse, eh? Yeah. But limiting the pool of suspects, I guess there's always the possibility that we think the photos may have been deleted by someone other than the actual murderer to protect some kind of secret that wasn't her murder. So, I mean, yeah, we know that's not what happened, but theoretically, the murder and the photo deleting could have been two separate things. Yeah, of course. Although yeah. I think Strike is lining this up with Bristow trying to keep him away from Rochelle. And oh, yeah. That's, that's where the clue is. Yeah. Strike knows the clue. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm also laughing at you saying a poor nurse because now I'm just imagining that Janice was Lady Bristow's nurse. <gasps> oh, my God. What if she was? Could you imagine? It's another one we've solved. Oh, solved the case. Another Janice victim. That would be amazing. The link four books previous. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) About Bristow trying to blame deleting the photos on the nurse. It's just, it's so funny. You were mentioning, you know, just a few moments ago, Linz, about how his guilt is so obvious in hindsight. Because like, it really is. Like, as soon as he's like, oh, yeah, I bet it was the nurse. They (laughs) they probably did it. And it's so, like, in hindsight, it's just like, oh, dude, really? (laughs) Because it's like, delete equals, oh, they took them. That's not how photos on a computer work, my bud. <laughs> what? I was going to say it's plausible that someone else would have messed with her photos in the I mean, world yeah. of the famous, right? But yeah, why would she then delete them? That doesn't make any sense. Copy. No. Yes. It's just not how photos work. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> when did Duffield visit? Because I feel like if I had been connecting all of this, that could have been a good red herring if the time fits. I believe that he visited after Bristow hired Strike. In part two, chapter nine, Bristow said it was yesterday. 
And it was Duffield's visit to Lady Bristow that was the news of the world story that Robin texted Strike about. Yeah, you're right. So that wouldn't fit. Mm. So it really kind of leaves John Bristow and Tony Landry as the biggest suspects, right? Yeah, it does. And I know I'm saying this like we all should have caught this, but I mean, come on, we're never going to catch this. But in (laughs) hindsight, it's a great clue. Yeah, (laughs) no, I'm never going to catch a single clue in a J.K. Rowling novel. Like Mm -hmm. I can figure out the whodunit in something like Dorothy Sayers, which I did twice this week. I got the answer to Dorothy Sayers novel. I've been on a bit of a mystery kick, but Rowling, no absolutely not a chance (laughs) yeah i figured out the killer when i read death on the nile a couple weeks ago but yeah totally different thing yeah one last thing i love that bristow asks why someone would delete photos but strike doesn't answer him he only says that he can think of a few reasons and i think Mm -hmm. at this point he's really trying to keep bristow on his toes and not give anything away yeah he doesn't want to tip bristow off this early before he finds the proof he needs right because otherwise bristow's going to start doing sensible things like getting rid of that phone he took from rochelle's body etc although on the other hand it kind of might be helpful to see how he's responding to things because if he's responding nervously he might know that he's getting close right Mm, yeah good point this whole next bit is fascinating to read where strike asks wilson to go over how he searched the building and everything he did that night and Mm -hmm. I, i just love how we get to see how skilled strike is with questioning a witness And I love how their two outings so far, the first one really showcased Robin's abilities and her skills. And the second one is now showcasing strikes. Oh, yes, absolutely. It really shows off strikes training and experience too, Mm -hmm. because so Robin was just pure genius, right? Pure improv brilliance. Whereas strike we see has the organized acquired knowledge of how to elicit this kind of testimony from a witness that takes training to do. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of that line that they added in the lethal white adaptation Mm -hmm. where he says that she's just as good as him. I like that addition because it feels true. She has this natural instinct for the job. It's just that her skills need to be polished and he helps her do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, closing out this chapter is when Wilson remembers that there had been big drops of water on the floor that he slipped on. And it says something that had bothered Strike all along had at last been made clear. He let out a great satisfied sigh and grinned. The other two stared. <laughs> a clue. So to be clear, what had been bothering him was why would Lula have let Bristow in that night? The answer is Bristow stole some roses and held them up to the peephole and then the water is dripping off the stems. I feel like we need a Blue's Clues notebook. We found oh, a yes. clue. We found a clue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to chapter four. So this yeah. is when Strike interviews Lula's birth mother, Marlene Higson. And the chapter opens up with Strike sitting in the office and looking at the photograph of Lula's building from the morning she dies. It says there was a small but to Strike significant difference between the frontage as it had been then and as it was now. So again, it's those shrubs. Put it in our Blue's Clues notebook. It's a clue. (laughs) Okay. Do you guys love this phone call with Peter Gillespie as much as I do? Uh, I love it. I'm sure that this is going to come as an absolute shock, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love how it says Strike hadn't really lost his temper and actually Mm -hmm. felt mildly cheerful at telling Gillespie off. It's really satisfying. It really is. So this is the second time in his life he said that Ropey can stick his money up his ass and set fire to it, right? Or am I misremembering the account of when he was going to Oxford? No, I'm pretty sure that's right. And maybe <laughs> maybe it's something he thinks a lot when he's ranting in his own head. You oh know? my God, <laughs> it must be. Oh, bless him. Or he just remembered how good it had felt to say it at 18. So he wanted to give it another <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, I like that a lot. 
I'm going to bring up the Gillespie theory for a minute. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, my personal favorite theory is that Peter Gillespie is the person who killed Leda. Um, you can listen to us talk about that if you haven't. It's on episode 18 from when we were covering Troubled Blood. But I think there are a couple of potentially relevant things here. So the first, Strike asks if Rokeby has him working on weekends now. And it's no real surprise that Gillespie doesn't respond to this, but I'm kind of now imagining that Gillespie is not calling from the office at all. So this is personal and he's doing it on his personal time. Mm, I think that this definitely qualifies as a clue Mm -hmm. and it supports our theory. Sneaky Gillespie calling on the weekend. And I should point out that Strike doesn't check the caller ID here. So he doesn't know which phone Gillespie's calling from. Could be a different line, huh? It also seems like nothing is good enough. Mm. So the fact that Strike says that he can pay him back in a few weeks, possibly all at once, it doesn't seem to mean anything to him. I just get a sense of real desperation from Gillespie. Yes. I also get the impression that he is a world-class dickhead. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good impression. Yeah. And lastly, Strike's point that Rokeby is never going to sue his one-legged war hero's son is pretty spot on. I think this could also point to the fact that it really isn't Rokeby behind this. Yeah, I agree. It's so weird that this whole thing, it's about money that is actually child support money that belongs to Corman. I would really love to have all of the detailed financial and legal information about that child support account just to like (laughs) sort it out in my head what's going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, big time because that would really tell us if we're actually onto something here. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till Ink Black Heart to see if there's anything else that supports this or something that says that maybe we're not on the right path. Yeah. If Rokeby shows up in Ink Black Heart, then Gillespie will probably show up too, which is set in the stage for the big reveal in book seven Mm -hmm. that he'd done it the whole time. (laughs) It's a good theory. Okay. So then Strike highlights two things before going to bed. He underlines the words Malmason Hotel, Oxford, and he circles the name of J.P. Aggieman. So if you're someone who's going to go back and look or if you happen to remember, each of these things is mentioned once before. In chapter one of part three, the hotel is mentioned as the place where Tony Landry stayed for his conference. And of course, Aggieman is the name of the professor Lula was researching. These are also the notes that Robin later finds coming up and she gets the answers to. Can we just take a moment to appreciate the amount of time and effort it takes to plant all of these clues? Because it is seriously incredible. I'd love to see the process on how how all these plots are actually constructed and put together. I imagine like a wall-sized cork board full of pins with bits of string that connect photographs and notes and random objects like feathers and stuff like that. I've always wondered if she does like a really detailed outline. I know that she says that she always knows who did it, how they did it, why they did it. I just want to know what it looks like on paper. Yeah. I would love to see that process as well. Yeah. But then we get our first introduction into Marlene Hickson where it talks about how difficult it was to get an appointment and it's not great because it kind of shows us that she's clearly after publicity it's just something that's so hard for me to fathom because you know this is her birth mother I was just expecting a little bit more feeling from her I think it's pretty clear from this whole bit with the negotiating for the interview that the possibility of publicity is the only thing that could lure Marlene to an interview she's not being paid for yeah she's certainly an interesting character I mean does anyone have any general thoughts about her I get shades of Betty Fuller, sort of an echo there. Like it's an illustration of the damage that a brutal life, like the one these women have had, inflicts on someone's body and their spirit. Oh yeah, totally. That completely leapt out at me too. Yeah. Uh, This has zero relevance to anything in the story whatsoever, but- 
cool. So you might find this exciting. We have more Canadian representation. Woohoo! So the brewery that makes the beer that Marlene drinks was actually founded in London, Ontario. So more proof that Canada exists. We do exist. There are dozens of us. <laughs> dozens. <laughs> so Marlene expresses all kinds of opinions about pretty much everyone in Lula's life, but it's hard to know what to take as truth. Do you guys feel that way? I mean, do you see anything anything in, in what she says about all these people that reflect any real insights into Lula or the case? I do believe her about Tony Landry not wanting her at the funeral, though. That fits. Yeah, that most definitely fits. The fact that she went to the funeral with all the resistance she would have faced, to me, speaks much more to her having actual feelings for Lula than anything else in this interview. Or she could have been trying to see if there's any talk of the will. But Well, hopefully they don't do that at the funeral, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I agree with you. I think this might be one of the grossest things Tony Landry has done in the book. And trying to keep her away from the funeral, I think it's just really cruel. Yeah, it is cruel. I think it's clear that Marlene was never actually close to Lula. She doesn't know that much more than anyone who reads the papers would know. So it's because Lula met her and then uh, noped right out of there, basically. Yeah, she did. I think the fact that she had so many opinions about so many people, I didn't take a lot of it as truth. I thought she came across as really, maybe not a busybody, but just quite nosy. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before, but when I think of Lula as compared to, say, Margot, it feels so different because I feel like we really got to know Margot through the people in her life who loved her. Mm-hmm. But with Lula, I feel like I just have more questions about who she was. And it feels like that because no one really knew her and people were more interested in her fame or her money or what she could do for him. It's like she had all of these people around her, but it seems like her life was so lonely. Now oh. I'm just thinking of that Britney Spears song, Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true and so sad. With Margot, even the people who hated her sketched a pretty accurate picture of her personality, right? It was just a personality that they hated. Mm-hmm. But with Lula, it feels more like she's a mirror to other people than a force of her own, you know? Like other yeah. people see their own ideas in her. She just reflects people back at themselves and people can't see through that to her. But at the same time, she, she was her own person. It's just harder to pick out all the bits of who she was because everyone around her constructed a Lula that suited their own ideas. And Strike eventually asks her about Lula's biological father. And <laughs> this line always makes me laugh when it says, To hear Marlene Higgson tell it, the courtship had proceeded with an almost Victorian respectability. She and the African student seemed barely to have progressed past handshakes during the first months of their acquaintance. Mm -hmm. I get the overall impression that Lula was far more interested in her father than she was in her mother. I feel as though meeting Marlene must have been a huge disappointment for Lula in terms of getting in touch with her roots, you know, so she pinned all her hopes on her, her biological father. And part of that was likely because she was a black woman adopted into a white family. Of course, she'd want to find that part of her personal history, but she might have also been more interested in her birth mother before she actually met her. Yeah, definitely. I'm no big Marlene fan, but oh my God, I about died of laughter when Strike was questioning her about Lula's father. And she says, you taking the piss, McDonald Wilson from Africa? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that made me laugh too. But it's also really interesting because I think Strike knows what he's doing. He's throwing in some names of people related to the case and to Lula to see if Marlene just agrees with a familiar name. Mm. It's almost a point in her favor that she doesn't do that. And I also get the feeling that despite what Marlene Higson says, that Lula may have picked up on just how much she seemed to care about Lula's money. It's not that I don't understand where that comes from with the life that she's had, but it just seems like Lula was seeking anyone who would care about her as a person, you know, and I don't think she found that in her biological mother. 
I agree. Marlene asking her for a couple grand to trace her other children. Does she think Lula's an idiot? Her motivations seem really transparent to me. Seriously. And I just love how she's being all snide about Rochelle asking Lula to buy her something that she wanted when she's basically doing the same thing. Oh, yeah. I get the impression that she was maybe a little jealous of Rochelle. You know, they come from similar backgrounds and Rochelle's kind of getting this five-star treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay, should we go on to chapter five? I know that's why everyone's here. Oh, yeah. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So this is Strike obviously getting drunk at the Tottenham Mm -hmm. best chapter. The opening of this chapter is Robin apologizing to someone on the phone and the way she is apologizing makes me think that charlotte is really laying it on thick Mm. the way robin says i'm so sorry and she'll make sure he calls that afternoon yeah i'm always super intrigued when we get to hear charlotte actually speak it's only happened Mm. in like three of the books four scenes in total right but anyway this is the most we hear from her until lethal white thank god it's only four scenes in total (laughs) (laughs) it's mad how someone with so little actual dialogue can have such a big impact on so many things across mm. so many books it's mad yeah seriously it's kind of interesting that we probably hear from her the most in troubled blood right yeah with the texts yeah, yeah when the risk of strike going back to her is at its lowest mm. yeah she says that she wants to warn strike and she acts like this is all embarrassing but i mean come on She's orchestrated this whole thing in order to hurt him. She's not worried or embarrassed. She's exhilarated. This Mm. is fun. Yep, exactly. She acts like she doesn't want him to read it in the Times. The truth is, she can't be sure that he'll read it or be told, so she has to call him to make sure that dagger sinks in herself. exactly, because if he hadn't seen it, she would have married someone for nothing. (laughs) Would have been funny if he'd never (laughs) figured it out. And four years later, she turns up, I'm divorcing Jago, and he's like, what? What? (laughs) What? (laughs) I know it was impossible, but it would have been hilarious. Charlotte's just awful, basically, is the moral of that story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to remember that this is the only time that these two women speak before Charlotte's phone call in Troubled Blood, right? Mm, Yep. And Charlotte made sure to ask her name. And I know that Robin's name will have been in the press and everything, but I, I have the feeling that she remembered it from this phone call. Yeah. I am very certain that Charlotte has always had an encyclopedic memory when it comes to women with thin strikes orbit so mm-hmm. yeah i agree that she filed robin's name away in her head right there wow charlotte's as obsessed with strike as i am <laughs> <laughs> she should start a podcast <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fourth wall breaking it if any black heart that came up yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i just feel so bad for robin because it's such an awkward position to be put in yeah i love the way she briefly considers making charlotte do her own dirty work because that's what it is isn't it yeah as she's considering what to do there's this line that feels oddly like she's just looked into the future a little bit and it says if she and matthew ever split up if he became engaged to another woman it gave her a twisting feeling in her chest to even think of it all her closest friends and family would feel involved and would undoubtedly stampede to tell her she would, she supposed, prefer to be forewarned in as low-key and private a way as possible. Oh, that is some serious foreshadowing <laughs> and irony. We certainly know now that she was right about her family stampeding to tell her every yeah. little detail about Matthew and his other woman. But aside from that, Robin feels so young to me here. I mean, I know it's because I have the benefit of looking back on her from, you know, five years in the future, but she's a baby. She's such a sweet summer child, you know? I know what you mean. And I think if we look at what JK Rowling has said, that it's like she lost five years Mm -hmm. and not that I think that Robin is immature because she's not, but in terms of her relationship with Matthew, I think we're seeing her as she was at 20, Mm. you know, in in the way that she views him and, and views their relationship. 
That makes a lot of sense. I know we all love Shrike coming up the stairs and rapping DB Mac, but I think the reason we love it, or at least the reason I love it, is because he's so cheerful and mm -hmm. we don't really get to see that a lot. So when it happens, it's really fun to read. Yeah, it is. When is he next cheerful enough to just burst into song? Is it in Troubled Blood with Song of the Western Men? Am I right about yeah. that title? Yeah. yeah, it's got a lot of names. I always knew it as being called Trelawney. Oh, yeah. There's a band called Fisherman's Friends, and they're a group of fishermen from Cornwall, and they do a really good version of it. And that's how mm. I imagine Strike seeing it. So if you've got five minutes, check them out, and they oh. do a really cool version. I'm going to have to. Someone post the DB Mac rap so I can hear how you <laughs> say that. Oh, that just reminds me in the audiobook that that part is just, it's hysterical. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> it makes me think of Robin singing to herself, though, in chapter 58. Mm. Strike might have been yeah. happy enough to sing then, too, but somebody Aww. interrupted i just realized that robin sings in this novel too she bursts into song on her first day because she's yes, so happy and then they both sing in troubled blood which is book five five yeah it's not quite the god damn it i thought i was onto something there it's cute though it is cute yeah. it's like the turning point or yeah. something yeah okay yeah I'm good great. sorry i interrupted you no no that's great. i just had to say it poor robin though his cheerful mood brings her more dread because she knows she's gonna have to ruin it oh i feel for her it's like does she just rip the band-aid off or does she like make a cup of tea make him sit down before he hears the bad news clearly she goes with just ripping it off and I, yeah i think that's the best option yeah it's much better just to come out and say this stuff yeah i agree and i don't think strike would have appreciated you know the fuss no the db max song that strike is rapping mentions jahari as i we all know and robin explains that this is the jahari window and says it's all to do with how well we know ourselves and how well other people know us so i looked this up because i was trying to see how this idea could relate to the book or the characters and what i found is that it's a communication theory based on the ideas that trust can be acquired by revealing information about you to others and learning about yourself from their feedback hmm. and my immediate thought is that this is what's going to happen in this chapter where strike reveals information about himself you know and kind of just their whole relationship and opening up and learning to trust each other that's kind of still developing oh that is so true i was looking it up too and apparently it's also in addition to that an actual exercise that you can do so you pick a bunch of adjectives that you ascribe to yourself and people who know you choose a bunch of adjectives according to how they see you and then they're sorted into the four windows of how you see yourself and they see you how you see yourself how they don't see you etc cetera, etc cetera. and i just want to say that i would literally pay money to see strike and robin do this exercise with each other and with the whole office like have pat submit her adjectives about strike <laughs> I, I genuinely want to kind of like write that scene happening because it would be hilarious i think that's really interesting i think that's a really yeah. cool idea yeah, it is. Doing that exercise sounds awful to me. I wouldn't want to do it, but I can see how it'd be entertaining to watch them do that. And I'm imagining Robin doing a lot of blushing if, if Strike oh. puts a lot of nice things, right? Oh, and she would put so many nice things about him too. Yeah. There is this whole four-part window thing too. So the four parts are open, which are the things that we know about ourselves and others know about us. Mm -hmm. The blind spot, things others observe about us that we're not aware of. The hidden area, things we keep from others about ourselves. And then the unknown area. 
And those are things that are unknown to ourselves and to others. And they have to be discovered like feelings, capabilities, talents, et cetera. And this last one really stuck with me just because of the feelings that they keep hidden from themselves and each other and the capabilities and talents that Robin will discover in herself. Yeah, I just really like this as an overall observation of these two. It's such a fun moment to read, but I like the idea of applying it to the characters. And I've never thought to do that before. I just love that every time you reread these books, you can find something new. Yeah. Are there any thoughts of Robin's memory of the dog Bruno and how it relates to this part? Well, just that uh, we don't talk about Bruno. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't talk, we don't about, talk Bruno. about Bruno. Oh, no. Why would you do this to me? <laughs> help myself. It's been stuck in my head for weeks. Well, now it's <laughs> now you back have to in mind with me. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> More seriously, though, I love this insight into what young Robin and her family was like. I just, I think it's a really vivid illustration of the grief she sees in Strike's face at this moment. Like, it really resonates with me. I mean, again, why would you do this to me? Because you're right about what his expression probably looked like, and that's heartbreaking. Oh my god. Yeah. Wasted on Charlotte. Come on. Oh, I know. Gross. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So then Strike heads to the Tottenham and I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything to the fact that he sits underneath that painting and what it could be representing. Do you have any mm. thoughts on that? Well, just to include the quote, he sits almost beneath the sentimental Victorian maid who scattered rosebuds, sweet and silly and simple. This is like the fourth time this novel that the Victorian period is mentioned, isn't it? I've just realized because we just had one where something looked Victorian Oh, that was the handshaking between Marlene and... and Yeah, the Victorian courtship. We had him thinking he was a sickly Victorian magnate, profligate or something. Now we've got this. We had the Victorian pub when the first... The bottom... It's a lot of Victorian references. Anyway, so he sits almost beneath the sentimental Victorian maid who scattered rosebuds, sweet and silly and simple. And I feel like there's possibly a double meaning here. So where maybe... He feels like the silly and simple maid because he's been made a fool out of by Charlotte and Jago and he didn't see it happening right beneath his nose. But then maybe the second meaning is that this is a contrast with Charlotte, who's anything but silly and simple. She's ruthless and self-destructive and clever and complex. Yeah, there are a lot of paintings mentioned in this book, aren't there? Ooh, and there are also a lot of paintings in lethal white yeah. I mean, could this possibly be some ring structure that we back in seven i have no no idea how well jot it down for our book seven prediction episode yeah i'll have to remember that yeah <laughs> so poor strike it then says he drank as though his beer was medicine without pleasure intent on the result well you treat outside wounds with rubbing alcohol you treat <laughs> inside wounds with drinking alcohol that's just science oh thank you dr pools you're welcome <laughs> everyone knows it's like glue though yeah puts it all back together once it's on the inside yeah. <laughs> like jokes aside what a sad thought strikes out in the corner trying to forget it all and make all his problems go away that makes me really sad yeah i think he knew he needed the distraction so he didn't take her bait you know mm-hmm. yeah so it seems to me Like the thing that's bothering him the most is his suspicions that Charlotte was unfaithful to him. Hmm. So it says she must have been in touch with him, seeing him while they were still living together. Even Charlotte, with all her mesmeric power over men, her astonishing sure-handed skill could not have moved from reacquaintance to engagement in three weeks. She had been meeting Ross on the sly while swearing undying love to Strike. Do you think Strike is right that she was unfaithful? 
Yeah, absolutely I do. Yeah, 100%. I imagine Diego being on the sidelines waiting for something like this to happen so he could swoop in because he knows what Charlotte's like and maybe he saw this coming for a while and knew that something like it would eventually happen. Maybe he wants his revenge on Cormoran for the same thing, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's a good one. Do you guys all see this the same way that I do, that he's more upset about this than the wedding? Because it seems like, to me, her getting married is kind of expected behavior from her. But the other thing hurts so much because he had really believed that she loved him. Oh, it's interesting that you say that. For me, it's the opposite. Like, I read that it's the getting married to Jago that's the real wound, while being unfaithful feels like it's kind of par for the course with Charlotte. His musings on how Jago had been married already and Charlotte had laughed at her escape and felt sorry for his wife, that all seemed to kind of point that way to me. Maybe it's what these actions mean and what they represent rather than the actions themselves. Could be a male pride thing to a point. I mean, nobody likes to feel like they've been played along for want of a better word i guess it's just that last line she had been meeting ross on the sly while swearing undying love to strike yeah you know it's that he believed that she loved him that's hurting him but i mean i hope people will let us know what they think which they think it is or if it's just a kind of all of the above situation Mm. Mm. yeah but now we get to the really good part where robin shows up and i always laugh at the part where he gives her handbag a smile and drinks to it (laughs) (laughs) especially since he's come to think of it as comfortingly familiar so yes cheers yeah. to a comforting familiar slightly yes. shabby handbag let's all take a drink to robin's bag if i had a drink <laughs> i would take <laughs> it <laughs> but also um strike telling her wrong man wrong table always tickles my fancy because yeah. he doesn't even know she doesn't even know that it's the right man and the right table uh, <laughs> right in the fields pools yeah <laughs> I also really love Robin showing a little bit of spunk when the bartender tells her Strikes had enough to drink and she says, that's hardly my fault. Amen. That's my girl. And also just 11 beers. I can't even fathom what this would be like. I mean, I don't drink beer and maybe I'm a lightweight, but it just seems like I literally wouldn't survive. (laughs) I'm also not a huge man, so I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, beer is disgusting. And I would punch myself in the face before drinking 11 of them because that the volume of that sounds very gross. But 11 ounces of liquor and a steady stream of mixed drinks. Mm. Shamefully, I can imagine. (laughs) I couldn't do it either. I don't do beer. I like beer, but that is a lot of beer, 11 pints. Oh man, if we thought mushy peas were controversial, wait until people hear us say we don't like beer. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna be the in letters are gonna yeah, start coming. I know. At least we've got Sam here holding up the beer side yeah, for us. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Sam. <laughs> but then Strike tells Robin what's going on. And I, I know we've talked about this before, but since we're here, should mm-hmm. we revisit our opinions about this mystery baby? You know, do we think Charlotte was ever pregnant? Honestly, no. Yeah. I think she's either late because of stress or unrelated reasons, or manufactured the whole thing. It's possible that she was briefly pregnant and miscarried statistically very possible and you know i'd feel for her if it was the case but honestly whole thing smelled like manufactured drama to me manufactured drama sounds very charlotte mm-hmm. yeah i've always felt like the answer didn't matter as much as him not being able to trust her on something so big mm-hmm. but i can see why it would matter to strike if there was a baby and if it had been jago's because it's mm-hmm. like a double betrayal Not only was she unfaithful, but she told him he was the father of a baby when he wasn't. Yeah. Especially given some of our previous discussions on how he likely views fatherhood as a serious responsibility. I totally agree. It doesn't really matter so much if she was or wasn't. 
the issue is that Strike couldn't trust her on this thing. And that was the yeah. death knell for them. But yeah, I can see that extra little betrayal there. I definitely don't think the baby actually existed at all. It's like we've said before, it's not really that it matters, but no, I don't think that it actually ever existed. Moving on to something less serious. Hmm. I've always liked the line they added in the adaptation where Robin says, you were funny actually, because she's not wrong, is she? You know, Strike is quite funny here between telling her that she's a nice person over and over to telling the barman he's rude for shouting, which cracks (laughs) me up. And, you know, his talk about boxing, like even Robin is trying to keep herself from laughing. Yeah, Strike was absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Also, that Randall Wisecrack in the bar was pretty funny too. Like, I could have been a contender. For those who don't know, I could have been a contender is is a quote from On the Waterfront, a crime drama from 1954 that starred Marlon Brando as a former prize fighter. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Also, though, serious kudos to Joe for writing such incredibly convincing drunk talk. <laughs> the phonetics of his slurring, his fixations on stuff like the boxing and Robin being a very nice person, like that is a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely not from personal experience, but can confirm this is exactly how it is sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mind keeps going back to a bit sad, Robin, which just breaks my heart every time. The gif is everything for that. Also, can we talk about how Robin leads Strike into the street and he goes along meekly? She's reminded of the enormous Clydesdale her uncle had kept on his farm. (laughs) (laughs) Add that big hairy mammal to the list. And that's the same one that she tells him about in Career of Evil when she says that her uncle has something that could carry him. And he's like, cheers, Robin. That is (laughs) very cute. That is adorable. There's this little bit here where Robin says that he needs to have food and sober up and then strike, you know, mutters, I don't want to sober up. And it's both adorable and really heartbreaking because he's drinking to forget. And then sobering up means that he then has to remember everything. That was kind of a really vulnerable thing for him to say, isn't it? Surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when we were laughing about strike bouncing off the doorframe when he was drunk in trouble blood? He does that here too. It's so good. It says, Strike wound his way back onto the street, bouncing off the door frame as he emerged. <laughs> Listen, door frames are very difficult to navigate, all right? They yeah. spring up out of nowhere. They are tricksy little fuckers. <laughs> hey, in the UK, they're like little messed up ninjas, yeah. a door frame. So watch out, people. Watch out. We need a warning door frame sign. <laughs> Okay, but then the way Strike immediately starts talking about Kairos moments when he comes back from the bathroom, it kind of tells me that he was thinking about this in there. (laughs) Maybe that's why he was taking so long. He was contemplating his Kairos moment with Charlotte. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. So doing something other than just struggling with his zipper. Yeah, well, that too. too. (laughs) I know that comes up a little bit later. And obviously we're 11 points deep now, but it's a zipper. It's just up and down. That's, yeah. that's all it does. <laughs> like, get it together. Well, it was that his shirt was stuck in it. So it was an added struggle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But obviously, this talk of Kairos moments has become such a big thing for us. I love that Robin isn't having it at first. Like, she's worried that it's either something sexual or that he's going to say they're having one now. And it's so funny because 
I mean, we think that they've already had one, right? The day that they met. Yeah. I love the Kairos talk. Mm -hmm. I love Strike's definition of it as being the supreme moment and the telling moment. But talking about the day they met, when I was studying rhetoric, I learned about Kairos and being defined as the exact right thing at the exact right time. And this is in reference to speaking, saying the exact right speech at the exact right time. But I think it also fits. And Carmen and Robin have more than one Kairos moment. But when you're looking at that definition of the exact right thing at the exact right time, that moment when she was right there to stop him running after Charlotte and he was right there to nearly kill her, that's Kairos for sure. 100%. Yeah. Well, he was there to save her. Yeah, save her by nearly killing her. Yeah. And finding herself after meeting him and getting this job really did do that for her. So, mm. Oh, I love that. Me too. I know we always think of Strike and Charlotte as being on and off for 16 years, but I tend to forget how long it had been since they had seen each other when she came to him in the hospital. I mean, two years is a long time. Yeah, I personally would be very interested in a breakdown of just how much of that 16 years was off versus on, because somehow I feel like they spent a lot longer off. Yeah, you're 100% more off than on. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I would love to see that. Add it all up and see how much they were actually together. Mm-hmm. Another thing we've talked about a bit before is this Kairos moment of Charlotte coming to strike in the hospital. And I know in a previous episode, I compared it with Robin coming to strike in the hospital and Lethal White and the very, what I think are deliberate comparisons. But mm-hmm. there are a couple things that he says here that I wonder and hope we'll get other future parallels to, like him saying that it was the best moment of his life. He doesn't even know. Uh, Oh, I'm just looking at ring structure and I would guess we won't see that completed until book seven. (gasps) And I mean, what can someone possibly describe as the best moment of their life? Oh man, I am over here screaming at the possibilities (laughs) of that. You can't do this to me. My delicate heart. (laughs) (laughs) I was specifically thinking about them getting married because, you know, people often say that's the best moment of their life, right? I mean... God, I feel like them getting married to be one of the best moments of my life. <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Not to be dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> so here's something that I'm hoping you guys can explain to me. As Strike is telling Robin that it's okay for her to leave, like they've already walked back to the office, he says something that is a joke that I don't understand when he says that he's legless. Oh, legless is Brit's line for being drunk as fuck, basically. Really? Yeah, because when one has imbibed heavily, one's legs tend not to obey one's brains <laughs> and you walk into door frame yeah so the joke is that strike is both legless drunk and literally legless as in lacking a leg which makes me think that it's polworth and maybe others mm. but this seems like a very polworth type of joke has cracked this at strike many times before Sam, can you back me up on this? Yeah, 100%. That's (laughs) totally true. Wow, this is brand new information to me. I had no idea. It almost seems like the Robin joke at the beginning that I never understood. Oh, I hope we have other listeners who are now edified. Yeah, I learned. (laughs) The day I learned. (laughs) (laughs) I guess as an overall thought on this chapter, this is probably my favorite. And not because Strike is drunk and funny, but because I always love moments where they allow the other in, Mm -hmm. even if that's fueled by alcohol. You know, it's a pattern that has remained throughout the series for me so far, and I just love it. Anything that breaks down those barriers that stop the real them getting closer is absolutely fine with me. Yeah. And for me, that is what I am most excited about for Ink Black Heart. Just the possibilities are endless. I had hoped for that in Trouble Blood. It didn't really work out for me. 
keeping my fingers crossed this time that they talk yeah we were so close but anyway moving off from drunk strike to chapter six where strike first goes swimming at the ulu and interviews Bryony radford so is this nightmare that strike wakes up from is this the first glimpse that we get into some of that ptsd that he suffers from I might be stating the obvious here, but the way that she plants these little seeds and tells us there's more lurking beneath and lets her characters grow. There's such brilliant writing and my God must take a lot of patience. I think it is the first time that we see Mm -hmm. that PTSD. We don't really get into his issues with driving until Silkworm, right? Yeah. But yeah, Joe is definitely amazing at the long game. And I love the way she describes his memories coming back to him as stabbing memories, like glass shards through his temple. It's so vivid. (laughs) And then, yeah, here's where... He remembers his zipper struggles and the relief that he had finally gotten it right. And Robin didn't (laughs) witness his zipper down. God. This whole description of his hangover is so incredibly painfully accurate. And I wince every time reading it because it brings back my own memories. I'm very grateful that he didn't drunkenly expose himself to Robin because I'm not sure they could have come back from that. Uh, I mean, I think it was probably just his shirt sticking out. Yeah. definitely not as bad but yeah i'm glad too yeah <laughs> the, the jump between you know the the crow pecking the side of your head level hangover and the chernobyl disaster inside your oh. head level hangover is the worst <laughs> i think strike was definitely at the latter end of those two definitely but then he finds robin's note and i don't really know what else to say about this because we've gone on so much about her tact and her consideration for him that we probably sound repetitive but you know more of that from Robin here. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that she was probably really excited to go out investigating on her own. Yeah. She gets to take a day trip to Oxford, right? To the Malmaison, which is a lovely city. I went there. Yeah. It is incredibly beautiful. I would recommend highly. Yeah, I spent an afternoon there. It was great. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. I think the PS in the note is my favorite bit though. You know, the mm-hmm. don't be embarrassed. You didn't do anything you should regret. Mm-hmm. Well, he probably regrets telling her anything. I don't like, think anyone likes being reminded of the things they did when they were <laughs> drunk to be fair no, not <laughs> yeah. the slightest. i think it's my favorite because i really like that robin feels this way because mm-hmm. i think that she was a little nervous that she'd see some behavior from him that she couldn't go back from you know like about the kairos moment worried that it was sexual you know what the fact that drunk strike in this book was just grateful and chatty about his hobby and a bit emotional really mm-hmm. endeared me to him because that's a peek into who he is right he's not the yeah. sleaze who has 11 drinks and then hits on his employee He's a good guy because in vino veritas, as Strike would say. Yeah. As Strike heads out, he gets himself some chocolate to help with the hangover. It does kind of make me laugh, though. You know, chocolate is good for hangovers and dementors. Ah, that's a tip. That's a good tip. Joe's got (laughs) tips, too. This is probably not that interesting, but Strike getting in the pool with a hangover has kind of always felt refreshing and revitalizing. I don't really know why, other than it seems logical that cool water would help. And there must be something symbolically to the idea of water helping to wash away, right? Definitely. Yeah, there's symbolism there. But honestly, the thought of smelling chlorine when I have a hangover headache is is (laughs) nauseating to me. But good for Strike for being able to push himself into physical activity because I I have never been this... I actually did look this up because I was convinced that cold water. Yeah, that sounds great. And actually it is on a list somewhere of things to do that helps with hangovers, cold Ah, water. Interesting. We also then get some more insight into Jago Ross when Strike turns his thoughts towards him and he sounds real terrible. Yeah. The drinking problem and being vicious in the way of an overbred animal. Like Mm -hmm. that stuff is concerning to say the least. Yeah. 
And part of the reason I think we might see more of him and Charlotte in a future book is like, you can't plant such a vivid image of a piece of shit without having his violence be relevant in the future, right? Um, maybe. Mm, maybe. I mean, it could be used to show how unappealing he is and therefore make it obvious that she's really only trying to hurt Strike. Yeah, that's a good point. And I keep wanting to say something about Charlotte not really having feelings for Jago and all of this is a ploy to hurt Strike. But then I think about the fact that she probably was having an affair with him. and Well, she wouldn't need to have real feelings for Jago to have an affair, right? But if she and Strike were on the rocks, which we know they were, then it could very much be about, you know, spite, anger, excitement, Mm -hmm. drama, like lots of reasons for her to do what she does rather than real feelings. (laughs) Yeah. And again, maybe that's the point, you know, trying to figure out if Charlotte did something, why she did it. What's really true is exactly what Strike is dealing with. And it's just, I can't believe how frustrating it must be. Yeah. I do like how Strike had this moment the night before where he didn't want to think about it. And just forgets. But the fact that he purposely turns his thoughts towards it, it tells me that he doesn't always avoid thinking about hard things. Sometimes it's good just to have a vent and to get it all out of your system and to feel it in that way. And then everything seems a little bit clearer afterwards. You can face looking at it after too. And I really like reading about how Strike is looking at their story arc and thinking of things being mirrored and coming full circle. It's just those words and phrases that we often use to talk about the books. Like he's thinking it too. And it might be a bit of a stretch, but it makes me wonder if she's pointing to these things and letting us know that she uses them. I don't think it's a stretch because, you know, I was thinking that as well. I think that's a good catch. little meta Easter egg there. Yeah, it's fun. You know how in our last episode, we talked how we liked the defiant strike was feeling when he put on his conventional suit for his interview with Gisme. We get a bit of a repeat with that here and strikes Italian suit, but it's much more personal and it feels so much more powerful, right? I guess I'm just curious about him having this feeling of defiance with two different suits, but I'm not really sure what that means or if it's just a coincidence. Okay. I know that I should, I should be saying big brain smart things, but all I can think of is, you know, suit yum <laughs> yes please <laughs> well i'm surprised that ken's hasn't mentioned him in the pool yet you know um, i was gonna yeah. mention it earlier you know i feel like there was a remarkable amount of self-restraint on behalf of all of us not mentioning <laughs> the uh, one the important liquids and two the water <laughs> lapping it is thickly hairy chest and i was like man we're doing really good we're keeping strike thirst at a minimum that is a very important <laughs> liquid now that you mention it pool water the water lapping at the chest oh. Very important. Would now be a time for me to step outside for five minutes. Look, like I said before, make it 10. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave you guys to it. It's all good. Oh, boy. I don't wear a suit very often at all these days, but when I do, it kind of denotes a, a sense of occasion. It feels like a suit of armor in a way. Like your whole mindset kind of changes and shifts to, you know, why you're wearing it and what you're wearing it for. Does that sound weird? No, I don't think it sounds weird at all, especially how you feel in certain clothing. It makes sense to me. Yeah. I really love him taking his power back like this, though, and allowing this suit to take on a new life and choosing to make this the day that he redefines this gift from Charlotte tells me that even though he's in pain, he's determined to not act the way she wants him to. Yeah, good point. It also makes me think of your idea of about love languages pools because he thinks about receiving this gift. And it says that the suit was a raiment suitable for her fiance. He remembered her beaming at him as he stared at his unfamiliarly well-styled self in a full-length mirror. 
So it doesn't say anything about how he felt about the gift, but I don't get the impression that this was a gift that touched him particularly because it seems like this was more about Charlotte and what she wanted him to be. Mm -hmm. Do we know of any other gifts that Charlotte has given him? I'm just wondering if she ever gave him anything that was really meaningful to him as a person and not a reflection of who she was trying to make him be. The only other gift we've heard of her giving him is the one she threw out the window in front of him on his birthday. So what it was, (laughs) we don't know what that was. It went Mm -hmm. out the window. So, and wasn't there the cane? Oh yeah. But that had belonged to a relative of hers, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't fit him. Literally it didn't fit him. Yeah. I I think that goes to my point that it was never really about him. Yeah, good point. It was literally too short for him and he mm-hmm. listed to the side like house. Yeah, like house. But yeah, that's a good point. I just like thinking it in comparison with the gifts that Robin gives him because they're so sweet. They're not expensive or this kind of high end taste, but they mean so much to him. Mm-hmm. So when Shrike arrives at his appointment, I remember feeling so much irritation on his behalf the first time I read this because he's told that he has to wait hours. And just as someone who is really punctual and weird about time, I would have found this so frustrating. Although I can sort of understand how a photo shoot might be the sort of place where delays can happen, you know? Yeah, I can see that. But I too would be really annoyed. But I feel like situations like these are the kind of things that make him miss the power he had in in the SIB the most. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I kind of want to start the discussion of Bryony's interview by mentioning what Shrike thinks at the very end of the chapter, Mm -hmm. which is that she had shown herself a highly unreliable witness, suggestible and mendacious, but she had told him much more than she knew. Mm -hmm. And not only is she mendacious, I had to look this up, this word, which is not usual for me. I know. I looked it up too, but that means nothing. (laughs) Mendacious means she's a liar. She's Mm. a lying liar who lies. But not only that, she is a terrible liar. Her tells, fiddling with her hair, the blushing, they are so obvious. I hope this poor girl doesn't play poker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, let's start out with the thing that she's flat out lying about, and that's the will. Strike notices the clear signs, like you said, when he asks her if she saw a blue piece of paper because she blushes, she starts picking at her shoe and just reading it back, she really tries to argue this away with him, doesn't she? Like she wants to move his interest away from it. And I think the reason that she's lying, obviously, is because she doesn't want to admit that she's been snooping through all of Lula's stuff. And I can't imagine that this would be good for her job security if high profile people know that she might go through their things. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wouldn't hire her to thread my eyebrows knowing she's a snoop. So what about in ways in which she's suggestible? I was kind of thinking the whole thing with D.B. Mac that she believes Lula was really excited, but it was really other people's excitement. I think you're right there. She's the kind of person who like projects her own feelings onto other people or picks up mistaken assumptions and just never questions them. Doing kind of a similar thing as Lucy did, making up narratives about people and clinging to them. And then lastly, she told him something that she didn't realize she had. And Mm -hmm. I was wondering if this could be about the voicemail on Ursula May's phone. So learning she was having an affair, Strike might have connected that with Tony Landry. Well, maybe. We do think she went into that voicemail on purpose, right? Like, I know I do. Absolutely. Yeah. But her using her dyslexia as an excuse also helps Strike because it explains how she saw the will leaving everything to Jonah and thought that it was to John. Yeah, that could be it too. Yeah. Yeah. 
And just because I have to mention this, I always <laughs> laugh at the beginning of the interview when he doesn't know what eyebrow threading is. Like he's so <laughs> what? And then especially when he tries to say the words later, but they don't really sound casual. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I love it too because I genuinely I have the vaguest idea of what threading is, even though I've like seen it. I still have no comprehension of how it can actually physically work. But to close this out, we said that we would try to come back to our epigraph for part mm. four and try and see where this applies. Besides my thought on Strike ultimately benefiting from Charlotte's foolishness, do you see anything else that fits? Well, maybe benefiting from Brianne's foolishness in regards to snooping through her client's things. Yeah, because there's Marlene, but Brianne seems to be more likely to me as well. Like she's the one who chose to make some foolish moves and it tells Strike a lot. Oh, and Robin benefits from Strike being foolish enough to get trashed because she gets to go out to Oxford and do some investigating. There you go. And she gets to know a little bit about him, which that too, you know, she wants to do. Yeah, I was mostly thinking about the fun trips, but that too, for sure. Those are fun chapters. They are fun. Yeah, they are. Can't believe we're getting so close to the end. Coming up fast. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Sam. Yeah, Yeah, that was awesome, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me again. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters seven through nine of part four. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.